back to Institutionalized, a podcast on American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fane Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Sabariam, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And Aaron, how are you doing this week? Well, I had a very busy weekend, Charles, because Did as you? you may have seen, Stanford Law School decided to go, pardon my French, completely fucking nuts. I liked your article, the headline of which was bullshit. Dog shit. No, but, dog shit. That's what yes. it was. Dog yes. The, the, the craziest thing about this is that after... So after the, this judge gets shouted down at Stanford, I take it a lot of our listeners know about this. If not, you can look it up. Like 48 hours later, the National Lawyers Guild Stanford chapter, which is one of the groups that organized the protest, sends an email. Communists. Yes, they're Just communists. They send an e the communists send an email saying, we stand 100% with the protesters, you know, who completely embarrass their school. And moreover... If they invite another judge like this back, they all but say, we will do this again because we cannot allow such awful right-wing speakers to be normalized on campus. And so I, I published the email, including the signatures who are identified as the board members of this group, who, again, sent this to like, a, you know, a mailing list. It, you know, it was not like a private text message or something. And then they email me to demand that I take the names down because I'm fomenting doxing and harassment. What is funny and enraging about this is that this is the same group that plastered their peers' names and faces all over the law school with on posters that said, shame on you, with the explicit purpose of shaming them and getting them to cancel an event. So, and now they turn around and say, oh, how dare you just name us in a reported story? It's insane. Anyway, so I'm very angry at higher universities. Anyway, yeah. So new takes to continue to speak. Yeah. So 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 anyway, that's more or less what we're going to talk about this week is higher education and in particular the proposals in red states and in particular Florida for reforming it, which have been very controversial. I mean, I think we all know, everyone who listens to this podcast knows that liberals dominate universities both at the faculty, but also at the administrative levels. Now, Florida, right, kind of led by DeSantis, is fighting back against woke capture with the sweet of higher ed reforms that are designed to effectively de-wokeify universities. You may have heard about him appointing Chris Rufo to the Board of Trustees of New College. But College disclaim. Yes, indeed. But, you know, the bigger part of these reforms, and in, in some ways, I think the more controversial part really, are the laws that DeSantis and the Florida State Legislature have proposed. I'm not sure if any of them have gone into effect yet, because I know there was a lawsuit trying to block one of them, and there's debate about others. But in any case, to just quickly summarize, these are laws that would not just ban DEI administrators, but would also ban majors that utilize pedagogical methodology associated with CRT or other such concepts. The laws would require professors who introduce CRT in their courses to do so in an objective manner without endorsement of the concepts. That's a direct quote. And the other thing that's been controversial among academics is that these reforms would give university boards of trustees, including politi political appointees, more control over the tenure process, that is the decisions of who gets tenure, and would also subject tenured professors to post-tenure reviews 
every five years, which are designed to ensure that the professors are doing work and fulfilling their professional obligations. Bottom line is that today we are going to talk about the arguments for and against these laws with someone who I think it's safe to say is generally sympathetic to them, as well as other ideas for reforming the university. We'll get to our guest in a minute, but Charles, what's your take on this whole debate? Yeah, I mean, look, what I'd say is I, I graduated from college in 2016, and if you'd asked me at that point, you know, to, 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 to paraphrase your foils, Aaron, is it just a bunch of crazy kids on campus? I would have said, yes, it is. And, you know, it's, it's an, I wouldn't just call it them. It's an age effect, they'll age out of it. And I think, you know, time since then has successfully convinced me that I'm wrong, that they don't age out of it. And that now they are the middle managers at many powerful public and private entities. And that's, you know, from, from major corporations to the Department of Justice. And that's a major issue. And so, you know, consequently, I'm pretty sympathetic to, in general, making it a political priority to forestall uh, a, a, a hostile ideology. You know, the, the way there's, there's, there's the, this sort of irritating misinterpretation of um, the paradox of tolerance, which is you have to be intolerant of the intolerant. And, you know, I, look, I think, I think if you want to create a, a society of rightly order, you know, rightly ordered society in which like freedom and virtue, liberty flourish, all these good things. You do actually have to foreclose certain ideas from having power in public discourse, if not formally through the law, then certainly indirectly through, for example, regulating what public employees can say. Yeah, so you know, I'm I'm pretty sympathetic. I think you're a little less sympathetic, but we'll get into the yeah. Tell you know what what's your take? Yeah, so I actually am pretty sympathetic to the the underlying conceptual framework for these laws, which is that a these are public universities and thus ultimately subject to democratic control and be right the 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 woke leviathan is so strong and hegemonic in these places that there, there is effectively no possibility for real meaningful academic freedom in a lot of cases much and, and certainly not for you know a kind of reasonable centrist consensus in in universities as currently constituted my concerns about the reforms, which we can get into in more detail, but just to summarize them, is that when it comes to kind of regulating how professors teach in class, I'm concerned that there's no agreed upon definition of objectivity and thus that those kinds of provisions, you know, while expressing a perfectly reasonable aspiration are in practice going to not just chill discussion of the concepts that I think should be discussed, but also may in fact be weaponized against conservatives, right? If you say that you have to introduce CRT, uh, you know, without endorsing it, but also objectively, are, are liberals going to interpret that to mean that a professor can't bring up CRT and then kind of like dismiss it or present a bunch of really strong arguments against it? That's the kind of like unintended consequence I worry about. And, and similarly with the tenure reforms, I... I'm sympathetic to the idea that public employees shouldn't be able to just sit on their asses all day and get paid doing no work. I worry that if you create mechanisms designed to ensure accountability, again, in practice, because the universities are so left-wing, those tenure reviews are going to be selectively weaponized against conservative professors more than against liberal ones. And that's kind of, I, I think that's not what DeSantis has in mind, but I worry based on my kind of understanding of the logic of academic bureaucracy that that is what will happen. But I could be wrong. And as I say, I'm sympathetic to other parts of these laws. So a great person to 
discuss all of this with is Josh Rao. He's a professor at Stanford Business School. And I was at a, a conference a few weeks ago with Josh, and we ended up briefly debating these laws, which he has defended in a Wall Street Journal op-ed. But we didn't really have time to have like a full debate. So I wanted to have him on the show to kind of give his best case for the DeSantis reforms and to, and to also hopefully talk more deeply about like what is academic freedom? What is the point of it? What is the point of the university, et cetera? So Josh, welcome to Institutionalist. Thank you very much, Aaron and Charles. Great to be with you. Yeah, so, so, so to start, I want to ask kind of an open-ended question, which is what is the end goal of the university and how, in your view, do these reforms help to facilitate it? Well, I, I think I actually want to start out just by sketching out where I think we are in the university and how we've got here. The end goal of the university should clearly be knowledge, the, the creation of great research that moves society forward, and the teaching of, of, of students, of, of, of young people. And unfortunately, I think the university system in the United States, both public universities and private universities, has become something completely different, which is by and large a vehicle for what I and the National Association of Scholars in a very detailed and disturbing 2019 report would call social justice, the social justice movement. And the social justice movement is closely related also to the what is often referred to as the critical studies movement, which is a movement that the latest incarnation of which is critical race theory, but that actually goes back a pretty long time to critical legal studies, for example, which, which emerged in, I think, as early as the 1970s and saw, began to see the study of law and the role of law schools entirely in the framework of looking at laws and how they affect outcomes differentially for people of different races and classes. And it's interesting I mentioned that because it seems that that theory may be dominating at places like Stanford Law School, where we, we saw this behavior last week and the, the, these, these shocking videos. So I, I think that the, the universities now, of course, you know, what is the social justice movement? It defines social justice in a certain way. And that is a way that is very closely related to the way that the critical studies movement has has defined it. And social justice is really has now reached a, a new embodiment in DEI, in diversity, equity, and uh, and inclusion. And so, you know, I, you asked about the what's the what's the mission of the university. I, I, I this weekend I was interested in looking at what Stanford Law School said that its mission was. I. I went to its website and I, I tried to find a mission statement. I, I didn't really find one. I, there was a link to about, you know, then about us. And then there was an overview statement that was more about sort of how great life will be if you come to Stanford Law School, how you'll get to hang out with professors at their homes and think about really innovative stuff and things like that. And then the next thing down was just DEI. And so I believe that the entire university system in the United States has essentially been captured by the social justice movement. And so it's much more extreme than the way I think you introduced it, Aaron. It's not just that, it, yeah, it leans left. 
yeah, it's bad. Right. They're ten, you know, they're they're, not, they're nine, you know, if, if you're if you're a Republican, you're in a minority. There are nine Democrats to every Republican on university campuses in the United States, according to the latest data. In some fields, it's like history; it's thirty-three to one. And so you look at that and you say, well, gee, you know, America, the way it votes, it's closely split Democrat Republican in terms of numbers. You know, it's not exactly fifty-fifty, but it's you know, moves around there. And that's how political composition of our government sort of shifts over time. And so you can look at that, you can say, all right, well, clearly it's, it's dominated by, by, by one party, but it's a lot, it's a lot worse than that because the entire system in my observation is really one that is a system whose entire purpose has evolved to promote the social justice movement. Great. I mean, one thing I just want to hone in on and then I'll let Charles ask question dig deeper is a lot of pundits have i think very disingenuously framed these reforms as if they're kind of outside right-wing intrusions onto a kind of blank canvas of perfect institutional neutrality where it's like oh well you know all all the academy is is just people of different views you know sharing their opinions with each other and it's all going great and then desantis has to come along and you know like inject politics into it and I think, as you correctly say, you you can't really understand the background for these reforms until you recognize not just the partisan skew, but the the immense institutional capture and the fact that the or, organizations are in many ways have been restructured around a set of goals and goods totally antithetical to this sort of proceduralist liberal discourse model that a lot of critics of the Santos like to invoke. And I do think that's an important point. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that starting point is where the state reformers is not only Florida now, it's 22 other states by latest count where the legislature is 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 getting involved. And I, I think it's, it's also important, Aaron, to disentangle a little bit what the various different proposals are out there and what some of the various. Yeah, let's are. let's you know, go you, there. You, you jump you jump right to, to one of them, which is the one that I. I had written about, which was a, a provision of the Stop Woke Act, an act signed into law last year in in April of 2022, and it is closely associated with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And that bill does a number of a number of things. One of the things that the bill does, which is currently being challenged in court, is that it prohibits the the espousing or advocating for the ideas that often permeate critical race theory, particularly that well, one race is superior to another by virtue of you know, a person is superior, morally morally superior to another by by virtue of the color of their skin or of their or of their gender. And and so there are a number of, of very specific kind of advocacy points that are in that law where it says, you know, you may not in a university setting advocate for these things. And so that's where a lot of the, the controversies come. Well, I, I definitely want to talk specifically about that because that's that was the subject of, of, of my of my piece. But I think it's worth also sort of doing just a brief taxonomy of what some of the different things are that state legislatures are doing and, and think, you know, think about those, each, each of them individually. Because I think each of them individually, actually, you can have a discussion about all of them. And you, you kind of, you alluded to them, but they include you know, abolishing DEI bureaucracies. They include abolishing the requirements for diversity statements when people apply to academic jobs. 
They also, to some extent, that some states are doing and have done in the past, include the elimination of race-based standards for admission. So essentially ending affirmative action in, in, in different states. And those last three, the, the Manhattan Institute in, in particular, and, and, and Chris Ruffo was, was a, a big part of this, put out a set of model legislation for states who want to who sort of do those things. But there are other things, right? So as you mentioned, there is giving more power to the board of trustees of the university on tenure and hiring decisions, giving them a, either a veto power or the opportunity to, to actually directly affect that process. And that's a process that's, that's historically and, and, and currently controlled by the university's sort of professoriate and bureaucracy. The board of trustees of the university has really had nothing to say about, about who is hired at the university as faculty. Also on, on curriculum, giving the board of trustees more, more say over curriculum. On curriculum, there are also some of these laws, such as what the, the Florida bill that, that, that you mentioned, HB 999, which has not yet been passed, but is under discussion, which in addition to giving more power to the board of trustees, would allow for banning, would actually ban race and gender studies as well as removing all funding for all DEI programs in higher ed, and also introducing these tenure reviews where professors could be reviewed post-tenure at any time. And you know, I, I agree with you on the, on the tenure review thing, and I'm not just saying that as a, as a tenured professor. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I think that that is the type of thing that, look, you know, if, if tenure reviews were removed nationwide immediately, the very first targets would be the people who are currently the heterodox voices. And, and so while we would like to believe that these post-tenure reviews are going to be conducted in a fair way based on productivity, based on the quality of your teaching, based on the quality of your research, based on your impact, and so on, very, very concerned based on the way I've seen universities work. And really any organizations, I mean, look, we, we all know that if someone at the top of an institution or organization wants a specific person in that organization out, they can find a way to make it yeah. happen. Yeah. And so once you remove that tenure protection, they're going to find all kinds of ways. I think the case of Josh Katz at Princeton yeah. was kind of an example of that, right? I mean, he was, he had been charged with, with or you know, there have been some allegations about, about his affair with a student. Those had been settled a decade ago. He started writing things that were not sympathetic to Antifa and to some other organizations on campus. And immediately those got dug up again. And within a year, he'd been fired for that. So I just think that's an example of, you know, you remove those tenure protections. You, you're, you're right. And, and, and that's one of the provisions that I'm actually the most concerned about in these laws. Yeah. Well, so, so, so let me, gosh, there are a couple directions I want to go, but, but let me sort of make the perhaps devil's advocate, perhaps I agree with this case for the tenure stuff and that'll bring us into a broader conversation, which is like, you know, look, there's one theory that says, there's one theory that says universities should be sort of independent and professors should be independent. And that's how you maximize the, the production of knowledge and creativity. And as you yourself acknowledged, it seems like the, the reign of that norm, such as it is, has not really led to the desired outcome. And so if, you know, if, if, if take these public universities, which are accountable, at least in some way, to the executive and legislature of individual states, Sure, I'd be alarmed by the idea of Princeton's, the people in charge of Princeton reviewing Josh Katz's 
tenure. But on the other hand, I'm less alarmed by the Florida State Legislature or Dean Ron DeSantis' office reviewing the tenure of people at New College. So it seems like in some senses, you know, look, if, if, if the status quo ante got us where we are, isn't a more democratic sh- a shift towards a more democratic set of norms? And by democratic, I mean where the government gets to make decisions plausibly preferable. I think, well, also, who, who would be conducting the tenure reviews and like how much role would the professors and administrators have versus the political? Sure. Although I'm, I'm, I mean, that, 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 no, I take your point. I just think like that's an important detail. I'm 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 usually sure. like yeah. you know okay let 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 let's shift the review tenure reviews to a gubernatorially appointed independent board but sure yeah you can answer both questions I I think I mean first of all more democratic set of norms absolutely and that's why I am generally as a principal completely and totally behind the idea that the legislatures state legis- legislatures not only have the right to get involved in the universities the state universities at this point but also really the obligation to do so. Because we have to come face-to-face and grapple with the question of at what level will key questions about, about curriculum, about personnel, about, about teaching in our state universities be made. And the fact is that up until now, they have been made by an extremely insulated administrative bureaucracy combined with an extremely left-leaning and not not particularly unbiased professoriate. And, you know, that has simply not worked. It has produced, it has produced very, very bad outcomes. And the public university system is in so many states so important. It is, you know, for 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 good students who might otherwise not be financially able to to attend quote unquote elite private universities, it is the the key the key option and an opportunity for them. It is, you know, entirely funded by the state government. And as such, it is, it is a question that has to be decided through the political system how these institutions are going to be governed. And honestly, I feel that state governments and state legislatures have, have, have actually failed on their responsibility to, to oversee what's going on in state universities to make sure that those universities are serving the the interests of the people, of the people of the state, whereby I'll also add that different states, you know, may reach different, different conclusions on this based on, based, based on what the, the, you know, the, the population of those states, population of those states want. And it's the job of the sort of the, the, the government, the legislature as intermediary here. They're the ones that are, they're, they're stewarding the public funds. They're spending the money on public university. It just can't be Public universities are unaccountable fiefdoms that state legislatures just have to pour money into. That just that just that just can't be. And 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 so you know on the on on the tenure point, I mean, I I, I agree. I think you know one of the there were some parts of HB nine 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 in the last draft that I saw that tried to really sort of outline what the criteria would be for these for these tenure reviews. And I thought that was that was an important step. That that was a point that Jordan Peterson made on his interview with. Chris Rufo, because they had a general, sort of like what we're discussing here, a general agreement that there's a huge problem, but some questions about what the right tactics are. And I, you know, Peterson made the point that the more specific the legislation is, the less the less the general provisions could be used against the ultimate yeah. goal here. Perhaps if you know the administration of the of the state turns over. Now, I looked at those those HB nine 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 suggestions of of criteria. And those also concerned me a bit because you know one of them was you know publication in the field's top journals. Well, that's great. You know, I I like that. I strive to 
publish in my field's top journals. But let me tell you, okay, so the top association of the, of the economics profession, I'm, I'm an economist by training, and that's where I like to publish my papers, is the American Economics Association. And they have an annual meeting every year, which is like kind of the biggest conference of the year of, 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 of professor, economics professors and researchers. And I, I didn't go, there's a lot of people didn't go this year because you had to be vaxxed, boost, and masks the whole time. There was a mask mandate in place. And so that sort of reduced a lot of what other, otherwise might've been some ideological diversity. And, and so, but, but anyway, what I did do was I did do a textual analysis of the titles of the sessions and the papers at the American Economic Association. And it was pretty interesting what I, what I found. I found that the words gender and race outnumbered the words inflation and capital by a factor of more than two to one. So if you're not writing about, and, and, the, and these, this is sort of, you know, the, the, the people who decide on what gets into this conference is a very similar sort of overall process to, you know, who, what, what papers get into, into academic journals. So, so I think you have to look at that. So while well-intentioned law is saying, yeah, well, we're going to specify what the tenure review is going to say. It's going to say you have to publish in, the, in, in, in top journals. If you're working on topics like inflation and capital, which I'm going to argue are super important topics for economists to be working on, you got less of a chance of getting into these journals than if you're working on gender or race. And right. so it's a real challenge. Yeah. So one point I just want to hone in on here is that there may, you know, you're an economist, so I think you're inclined to care about efficiency. This is one case where I think there may be a trade-off between efficiency and kind of academic freedom. And, and I think this is a theme we, we return to a lot on the show where sometimes there are, there are spheres of life where we actually want there to be inefficiencies in order to maximize other goods. And I think part of the debate about tenure, I'm curious what you think of this, is really like, do we sort of import free market values of efficiency into the academy? And, and what are the consequences of doing it? And I think from one perspective, it can be like, well, yeah, of course, you, know, you don't want people sitting around doing nothing. But from another perspective, if your goal is to kind of maximize academic freedom, it may be difficult in practice to kind of reconcile those two aims. And there may be a trade-off. Yeah, that's a great point. I think the, you know, the, the question about, about introducing a more free market, I mean, I generally would be in favor of a more free market structure for education. The question is going to be, you know, who decides? Who, what, what, are the, what are the evaluation criteria? I think the more objective they are, the, the somewhat, it becomes easier to do this. So let me take an example from K to 12. You know, I'm sure you've read about the Success Academy Charter School Network in, in New York yeah. City. So that's a, a network of charter schools founded by Eva Moskowitz, where they have had immense success at creating tr just terrific educational outcomes for, for, for lower income students in the, in, in the city of New York. And they do a number of things, you know, there, there's a big discussion about they actually require parents to be very, very involved. So it's, it's not clear they're not, they're going to be able to reach every student, but they, by, by numbers and everything, they do great. One of the things that I understand they do is teachers not only have no tenure, you know, if your kids aren't scoring well on the test, kids in your class aren't scoring well on your test, then you're fired. I mean, there's basically no, there's no tolerance for, for, for teachers whose kids are not progressing on very, very observable measures. Now, what's challenging about the university, what if you wanted to implement that university setting? Well, you know, it's like, what, 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 are, your, what are your criteria going to be? At universities right now, a lot, there's a lot of stake that's placed on student ratings. 
student ratings of the professors. How well did I like the professor, right? So every, you know, every quarter that I teach, I get ratings from my, from my students. Well, I mean, that, you know, that, that is, I mean, they, with all the money they're paying in tuition, you can understand why you want to think of them a little more like customers who, you know, are going to provide a rating and who deserve to have input, a strong input into what's good and what's not. On the other hand, you know, we don't really have very, very strong objective standards that we're, we're putting in place. I think, I, so I think that's, to me, that's the main challenge for introducing a much more kind of market, medium, a market-driven approach in, in higher ed. So, so I want to, just to sort of stay with the, 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 the technicalities, you know, there's, 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 there's an argument which says public schools, you know, p- private, private universities already essentially have, they're, they're far more limited free speech protections as compared to public schools, typically have more because of the First Amendment. For example, which 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 for example gives professors greater power in suing when their academic freedom is violated. The example is Jason Kilburn, a professor at Chicago, Illinois, who got in trouble for including the N word in on, on an exam. Are you concerned about some laws that should balance? Yeah, just just to be clear, it was a hypothetical. Yeah, on an employment law class about when it would be appropriate to fire someone for racial harassment, and he bleeped out. Yeah. Or merely including the bleeped out word in an employment exam hypothetical about discrimination. He got suspended. Just yeah, but so, but and he's so, where but we so are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 so are you sort of are you, are you concerned about laws like these indirectly constraining that sort of First Amendment protection? How would that? So give me an example of connect dots for me. How that would work. <laughs> well, so so on the the stuff about needing to present the concepts in an objective manner without endorsing them. I mean, say a professor wants to argue in class, present presents critical race theory in a particularly sympathetic way, and like doesn't necessarily say, "Oh, you must believe this," but says, "Look, my own view is that this has important insights about you know race relations." Like, can the professor say that? Or by contrast, can a professor say, "Here's critical race theory. It is an evil Marxist doctrine that is destroying America, and here's why." And like argue for it, but but tell the students, you know, my view is that this is evil. Do those run afoul of the objectivity provision in the law? I mean, I think that would be my worry. It, it's going to come down to how courts interpret this law, and and they, you know, we we I, I also, as I noted in my article, you know, there could be some clarifications made in 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 the law to you know to 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 address some of those questions in particular. You know, I, I think the idea that state taxpayers would have to pay for teaching that advocates and espouses views that members of one race or sex are morally superior to another. I think a lot of people, when you ask them, that, they're like, well, no, you know, I actually don't want my tax money going to that anymore that I would want my tax money going to, you know, history professors who deny the Holocaust or 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 American history, American studies professors who who argue that, you know, this slavery was, you know, wasn't bad or all kinds of things. But I, I think you're right. You get to you get to a point where okay, but what about these fine lines? What about devil's advocacy? Advocacy. What if I want to play devil's advocate? Or you know, what, what, you know, what, what does it mean to present a an imbalanced versus a balance a balanced balanced view? And yeah, I mean, there's going to be ambiguity there. I guess I think that the you know the principal libertarian in me want, would love to be able to say, yeah, you know what, free speech. You know, let let things let things work. And 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 you look at something like this, and you say, yeah, it's it's messy because you ha- you're going to have to d- distinguish what's a setting that was actually in- in advocacy, indoctrination, activism 
versus one that was where where there was there was balance. But I I guess I believe that the alternative right now is essentially losing the entire university system because I just come back to where it is that we're that we're starting from and and to and 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 it is these are fundamentally going to have to be political decisions when when the the, the question of what's taught at universities is really going to going to impact all of all of American society and so so yeah I I agree that it's that it's that it's messy but I think that's that that we have to go there I mean so one other question here one thing that distinction I want to draw is between the regulation of classrooms and the regulation of administrators and university officials because uh, it seems to me that doing the latter you avoid a lot of these issues in fact in part because for you know when you force an institution's officials to be neutral I mean, there's a whole school of thought that says that that enhances free speech. And in fact, there's a principle, I think they're called the Calvin Principles, Princeton and maybe Chicago has these, that say institutions should be neutral because if they're not neutral, it's going to undermine free speech. And it seems to me that purging DEI bureaucracies and all of that, all that all, and, and preempting DEI at the administrative level, that all furthers that and seems, I would argue, pretty uncontroversial. It's the intervening in classrooms that I think is separate and more messy. I mean, that's my view. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a, in a sense, prohibiting or reducing, cutting down, defunding DEI bureaucracies, that's, that's low-hanging fruit. The question in my mind is going to be, is that sufficient? And different people have different views about where this is all coming from. When I talk to colleagues... Where I ask, where is this coming from? There are some people who say, well, it's really coming from the DEI bureaucracies, and maybe that's going to be sufficient. When we remove those, they say that the DEI deans, such as those who, such as the person who spoke up, sort of took the floor at the at the Stanford Law School right. event the other day, that they're really the ones who are driving things forward. And in fact, one underappreciated aspect of that case, I think, is the email that the DEI dean sent out in advance of the event, which was cast by some as he uh, just a general heads up about the event, but really riled people up because it said this is somebody who is speaking against the interests of a number of of, of, of protected classes that were then that were then named. So there's some people who think that that's sufficient. I I'm not as optimistic about that. I think that I do think that will help, but I don't. I'm not sure it's going to be that's going to be sufficient again because I think that there are entire departments. And universities that are just captured by by this, and this was the sort of Marcusean, you know, a, a approach of of basically, you know, getting into the 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 uh, or I guess Gramsci, you know, getting into the yeah. institutions, and and I just think it's just very very embedded in the institutions. So you say, okay, I can't have a deep. Where, where, where will the pressure then come if the you know if the if if the administrators, if the president, provost are told you can't have DEI deans? Well, then what? How do we know that they're then not going to put more pressure on the professors? Because you know what? They're under pressure as well. An observation that I see is that, they, uh, you know, I'll, there are there are many of these many, many deans and administrators who aren't really full Kool-Aid drinking social justice warriors, but they are under pressure from various groups. They're in the public eye. They basically cave to the mob. And so I then I actually worry it's possible that 
you know, if you prove a DEI without saying anything about any of these other issues, that you might get more pressure in the classroom on professors to to toe the line. Uh, so, so I guess I guess building over this, this is a theme that's come in the conversation a couple of times. There's there's this sort of a broader question in this discourse, which is like, it seems the way you're framing the problem is this little whack a mole of you have the administrators and the students, the professors, the it's it's, it's some of the why should I think about if, if 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 I grant this framing, why should I think about this as a tractable problem? Like why why is the solution not just sort of to take my ball and go home? As some people I know advocate for. Yeah. Well, I I mean I do think that one of the real tricky things about this is that you know there is so much of the, of of higher ed that is government that is government funded and and these public universities. I mean the, to to me a first best solution would be introducing more competition in 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 higher ed and less government and you could take a pa- a page out of the K to 12 charter school playbook for that you know what i haven't seen people proposing but that i, I would propose is you know, what if we moved more to a sort of voucher type of system with public higher education would the market potentially provide the service of public education that people wanted at a price point that that they would be able to buy it at if if there were more if there were more options. So I think that that's what, there's just a fundamental contradiction between on the one hand the desire to want to say yeah you know we think that 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 professors and academics should be able to say whatever they want to say and and have for, you know the rights to, to 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 free speech and on the other hand having governments be an employer. I mean, that's always been the problem with these. I mean, I think it's it's worth just outlining the the, the issue. People might be thinking, I still don't understand why why isn't a professor have one hundred percent free you know freedom to say whatever they want to in a class? Well, the answer is that the 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 government is employing that person, and in the same way that you know if the government employs a public safety official or you know, a, a policeman, and that person goes around saying that they have you know they think that riots are good. The government does not have to put up with that because the person is is an employee, an employee of of of, of the state. And now the, there's a what has been decided. Somebody's saying something in their in their own private capacity on their Twitter account and things like that. Then their their speech is more protected, but not when it relates directly to their duties. And so I think there is a fundamental contradiction here. And if there were more competition, then okay, you would have people. Some people who like the social justice agenda, they could. They could go to social justice institutions of higher learning. People who don't like it or people who just want to focus more on skills and not so much on this nonsense, they would go to other institutions. So so I, I do like Charles, I, 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 I sometimes want to say, yeah, you know, maybe maybe we should actually really sort of dismantle the, the, the whole thing. And the, and the way to do that would be by introducing a competition via more of a, a model that, that tracks K to 12 charters, a charter school type of model. Yeah. I think I think I'm I am somewhat sympathetic to that too, in part because it avoids some of these dilemmas. You know, I would also say there there is a distinction here. I mean, it, part of the question too is is how these laws end up getting applied to professors or research and writings as opposed to what they say in class, right? Because I, in some ways, what I worry more about, to be honest is that someone like Amy Lax comes along and writes a well-researched, 
law review article that says not that like, you know, black people are morally inferior, but says like, here's the deal. Every reliable IQ indicator we know says that on average, these groups score lower than these other groups. And that explains the lion's share of why some groups do worse in the United States than others. And law should just reflect that reality and stop trying to social engineer. I mean, she's basically written this in a lot of forums. And, you know, that is a very controversial view. And it's especially controversial if, you know, say a professor says, and by the way, you know, there's some even genetic evidence or something like, and I worry about those kinds of really tough you know, envelope pushing, that kind of envelope pushing scholarship getting shut down. I also will say that, like, I'm not, I'm not quite as worried about, you know, professors getting in trouble for being really biased, frankly, one way or the other in class, as I am about the just suppression of uh, academics' research rights. I suppose my worry is that in practice, it really may not be se- possible to separate these two things. But I think that's kind of an open question. Yeah, I think it really goes to the exact phrasing of the of the of these of these laws, you know, and and and, you know, court you know, legal interpretations. I, I think as hard as it is, though, we as long as there's going to be a lot of government money in higher ed, well, there's a responsibility of, of legislatures of, of, of governors, executive branches of states, of, of the U.S. government, to to try to hammer some of these things, uh, hammer some of these things out. It's, it's it's not good enough just to step back and say, well, we're just going to let you know let the, this unaccountable bureaucracy do what it wants, because the unaccountable bureaucracy itself has been completely captured by the social justice movement and the entire concept of social justice as being the driving force behind behind a university right. behind, behind universities so so I, I kind of I, you know I tend to agree that it's messy and and yeah I I, I, I think you know comp, more competition in this in this sector the ability to spend government you know the money that the government would otherwise allocate you to a higher ed that is of your choosing that would that would alleviate some of these issues because Amy Wax would not be subject to this law as a teacher at a private university and 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 she, she you know she she isn't right now subject to to, to, to any of these, these, these right. types of laws so well she's also probably going to lose her job because there's no protections of these i mean that's the that's the other side of it but, well that's what we we're saying before is that yeah. <laughs> even now you see that's the thing even now where we see there's there's protection for tenure the cats case also showed that look if they want to get get you they can get pretty much any organization that wants to fire somebody for any reason whether it's a university or something they can always find a reason right uh, they'll always find something it's if they want it badly enough and 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 and, and so i i think that and and currently you know another point that's been made is in terms of the, uh, the trustees increase in the power of the boards of trustees i think you know th- there are states around the country where boards of trustees already do have you know, say in 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 various things. So it's it's not as though we're starting from a position where they actually have have no say. But the but but in in some circumstances, the point is that they don't. The, 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 there isn't enough there. They are really the entity that is going to be the go between between the government, elected government that's representative of the people, and the you know the administration that's gonna that, that's gonna run 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 these institutions of higher education. Yeah, I mean the last point I want to make, and we should go to. 
closing thoughts, but is that we, we've we talked a bit about the post-tenure reviews and kind of the, the weakening of tenure protections, but there's there's a conceptually different thing that these laws also do, which is just to put more political involvement in the board of trustees, right? To, to say, look, we're going to, you know, appoint some political appointees basically to the board. And so then to give those boards more power over the decision of who gets tenure, who gets the protections in the first place. And I would say, you know, this is the part of the law I like, actually, you know, considering how one-sided the academy is, it seems like in practice, when you just leave the university faculty to govern themselves, it, it, it means that there are, like at this point, no one like Amy Wax or even three standards de- deviations to the left of her can get tenure, right, to begin with. And that's kind of the problem. And some of these other provisions that I think get messy might be less necessary if just there was more political balance at these universities and injecting politics into the tenure selection process as opposed to the tenure to the kind of tenure removal process, I think is one way to maybe get at that. So, you know, I, I should just say here that if I've seemed critical throughout this podcast of some of the reforms, I mean, there are definitely others that are good and this isn't like a, you know, carte blanche rejection of what the census is doing i guess josh before we go to closing thoughts do you have any kind of like final big picture summary that you want to get across yeah i mean i guess i would say state legislation is one one tool in the in the toolbox and as i mentioned before i mean in, in some cases it may not be that state legislation is you know is, is even is even gonna 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 move move things because there are cases where there are, you know, there's, there are some states where basically tenure professors can be fired for cause relatively, relatively easily, and the administrators aren't actually doing that. So I think we have to look at what is actually in the toolkit to address this wholesale ideological capture of our institutions of higher education. And as an aside, I think a lot is at stake here. You know, this is where people, you know, who are, you know, it's where our young adults are going to build knowledge and skills that are going to take them through their lives, both as productive members of society and as thoughtful citizens. So, you know, there are a number of different different things that I think have to be have to be looked at. I think there, there are these organizations like the Academic Freedom Alliance and 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 FIRE that have basically tried to avail themselves of of, of really of, of, of existing laws to take, take cases to court where they believe that academic freedom has been, you know, has been, has been infringed upon. And they have, you know, in some cases done, done good things. They, you know, for example, Academic Freedom Alliance has, has, has defended Amy Wax. On other things, they, I think they take a sort of absolutist stance. For example, they are, they are against the Stop Woke Act. They are against the idea that the state legislatures should, should get involved. I kind of wish instead of combating those things, they would just sort of focus on what they're good at, which is, you know, su- you know, suing universities when they when they violate the, the the legal rights of professors. There's just plenty of fertile ground there. But you know, I think more and more more of those organizations are important. Heterodox Academy and so on. There, there are many of them. Not all of them are perfect. Not all of them have have, have I agree with 100. percent But professors should really we we you know should be joining those organizations much more. I think you know, new institutes within universities are always valuable. I mean, University of North Carolina has created a new 
school with you know w- w- within the university that's going to be fo- focused more, I think, on what I, I would call traditional scholarship in 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 the humanities. There are takeovers of existing I- entities and and reshaping them, like what's going on in New College, Florida. That's of course been very state government driven, but it could could also happen through through private means and. And, you know, and then there's the, the, the question also even of the of the federal government. I don't, I don't think under this particular Congress and president, anything would get done. But, you know, one proposal I've heard that we might need another whole other show to talk about would be the idea that, you know, perhaps political ideology should also be a protected characteristic like, you know, like 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 race and, and, and sex. And, and it gets the debate of, you know, do you want to try you want to try to use the existing structures and and work into them? To try to address what's wrong with the university, or with the right direction to go, be you know to have you know less 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 government bureaucracy. You know, do we, we don't want to get another law. We're going more in the direction of abolishing the part of education, which I think a lot of people would, be, would, would would be in favor of. But it's it's one of these questions of if you're conditioning on the existence of government being involved, and we better use these institutions to the best of our advantage. Otherwise, we're just going to continue to 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 lose the battle for institutions of higher education, which are so important for our country and, 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 and have, been, have been captured in some very, very dangerous and detrimental ways. All right. Aaron, let's take this as an opportunity to, to do some closing thoughts. Aaron, what's, what's your takeaway? Yeah, I mean, I came into the conversation skeptical of some of the provisions of these laws and come out still skeptical, but also I think a bit more a bit more sympathetic to the idea that just it's there's there's really no honest way to have this conversation that does not begin from the premise that the universities have been totally subordinated to the DEI agenda and that ultimately the goal is to to undo it. The only other thing I would say is, you know, one, I think, potential compromise is you input, you get politicians a lot more sway over tenure decisions because I think that's necessary to, to diversify the academy. You also could condition Title VI funding on, is similar to the political characteristic idea, but you could just say like universities, including private universities, if they get federal money, must have free speech policies that respect the First Amendment. Which would act, I mean, in some ways, that's the opposite of the Florida approach, because that would, that would force all universities to, I mean, protect Amy Wax as well as, frankly, protect Holocaust deniers if they have tenure. Which, to be honest, I, I'm i one of these tenure maximalists who thinks that once you get tenure, if the tenure process is, like, you know, fair, I basically think you should get to say whatever you want. But, but you know, you can, you can get rid of, I think, a lot of the regulating the classroom stuff if you just take away the faculty's kind of self-governance rights when it comes to like tenure decisions and DEI bureaucracies and things like that. Like there's certain aspects of the university where it would be better to just basically strip them of their self-governing authority and other aspects where if you did that, then I think you could give them a lot more free speech rights in the classroom and you'd avoid some of these issues. That's kind of my ideal policy synthesis, although I don't know if it's plausible or if it will work. Charles? I mean, look, I, you know, I, I, I basically maintain Bill Buckley's view on all of this, which is that academic freedom was always a pretext to the Marxists to take over the universities. They've accomplished that. And, and, and I think unless you see the debate in those terms, unless you see it as sort of not a matter of abstract neutral principles, but as a, as, as a conflict between people with conflicting substantive political views, 
you, it's not going to make any sense. You know, I, 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 I do not have sort of strong opinions on the merits of individual laws, just because you know it's not my it's not my area, and I have I have lots of colleagues who are smarter on this than I am, and I listen to them. But but you know, I think I think in general we'll sort of keep playing the game whack a mole Josh described, unless you sort of frame it as as conflicting political visions of the good rather than. You know, sort of about well, how far you know. So I'm not a tenure maximalist. I like to get rid of people who disagree with me and keep people who agree with me. The constant theme on the show, which is that Aaron's lib. Speaking of which, let's let's do some recommendations. Aaron, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, some people have probably read this, but there was a good long piece in the New Yorker about the decline of the English major. The reason I commend that piece to everyone is because it shows another aspect of this, which we haven't really talked about, and and that is that. The professors who are defending the humanities against their decline are among the most craven, pathetic, intellectually insipid creatures imaginable. It is hilarious. These people, you know, in the article are like, oh, it's so terrible that no one wants to take our classes and that people have low reading comprehension. And then it will casually say, and also this professor runs the, you know, center for like DEI in the humanities. It's like, yeah, of course no one wants to take your classes because you like hollowed out the humanities of any content and they are corrupt and terrible. And you all have aided and abetted this for decades. And it, it, the piece is good because it doesn't, it doesn't say that. But anyone who reads it carefully with a kind of Straussian eye will immediately pick up on that subtext. And it's really good. Yeah. To follow up on my closing thoughts, I'm going to I'm gonna plug sort of classic on this topic, which is Bill Buckley's original book, God, Man at Yale. Actually, you don't really need to read the whole book. You just need to read the introduction because the rest of it's like really a lot more detail on Yale college syllabi than you needed in, in the 1950s than you need today. But the introduction is very good. I think it makes the point. Quite directly, so I recommend it. Josh, do you have recommendations for our listeners from your own work, from others? There is a lot of good stuff out there. And on on universities, I guess I you, you kind of stole my favorite there, Charles. That was as I was thinking about what am I going to recommend. That that is my favorite. I think it's I think it's incredible that here we are and it's fifty years later and we're essentially, you know, we've I mean We've gone even further down this, you know, down this this sink into this sinkhole, and and so I I would I would I would say that I I think as a just a general reading recommendation, and maybe this this is less for universities and just a topic for another show, but you know Vivek Ramaswamy's Woke Inc. is a great book that I learned a lot about, and it also you know as a business school professor, so someone who is sort of working with students who are very much on the you know they're, they're they're going into these organizations it 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 shows just how much the social justice movement has also permeated corporate corporate america and and i think you know universities have to ask themselves business schools face a big challenge right now which is well you know a lot of corporations and the hr directors of these corporations they, they actually want they want social justice warrior students the hr directors do and so there is a concern if you go and try to carve a new way for business education, for example, where you're not so focused on ESG or you're not so focused on DEI, then is that going to put your students at a comparative disadvantage in, in the labor market? So I, I recommend reading that book. And I think maybe we also need to start thinking about what's the right way to, to, to address the, 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 the problem there. Okay. Well, thank you, Josh, for joining us on Institutionalized. Thanks very much, Aaron and Charles, for having me. It was great being with you. Yeah.
And thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, stop work acts you'd like to direct our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time that we have. So until next time, I'm Charles Fain Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. You've been listening to Institutionalized. Hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you.